Women Making Waves. Now, I hear, Linda, that you've been quite interested in the term huga. Huga. Right? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So it, it, it sort of came to the fore a few years ago, didn't it? And it's Danish and it yeah. means cozy, warm. <laughs> it, <laughs> it's, it's the winter thing. Because yes. you know the Danes have terrible winters, don't they? So they, they like this being by the fire, being mm-hmm. all cozy on the sofa, all wrapped mm-hmm. up in something furry and warm. Mm-hmm. And, and adverts pick it up as well, don't they? they adverts do. pick up in this huga thing yes. um, where, y- you know, you've got people by fires wearing very fluffy socks. And there's a <laughs> famous chocolate one and everything about it is very <laughs> soft You're making me feel, and yes. cozy. And then she kind of bites into a... <laughs> A chocolate, which makes you really want to have the chocolate. What makes me think about, yes, it's fantastic, isn't it? You come out of the cold, you come into the house. If you're lucky enough to get, you've got a nice fire, nice live. Do you say live fires? You say real fires, don't real, you? I think normally real it's fires. real. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Live, live fire sounds a bit like the whole house is on fire. Yeah, exactly. And the fire, the fire brigade yeah. are standing by. That's That doesn't no, sound good. It's, no, 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 no. Or a forest what, fire. What, no, not good. But the thing what makes me laugh is that you've got to have the prep before you sit down so you've got to make sure the logs are by the side of the fire before you can put the fire in. You know, it's just not very hygge, is it? No, you're absolutely right. You've got to go outside. Outside to get your logs. Freezing out there, freezing. And what is that if you go outside and there's no logs? You're not going to have your hygge, are you? (laughs) (laughs) So instead of looking all cosy in the sofa, you're probably going to be covered in bits from the logs. That's Your hands right. are going to be mucky. Yes. Sawdust. <laughs> Sawdust everywhere <laughs> down your trousers. Yeah. So when you get to that stage, that wonderful picture where you see the cosy socks and the mug yeah. Yeah, yeah. and the blanket in front of you, yeah. by the time you have reached that moment, yeah. it's time to go to bed. I would, I would say they've got staff. Yes. <laughs> that's the only, way, the only way to be hygge. <laughs> It's to have staff. I know, I know. I am being mean. I really am being mean. But it just makes me love these no, wonderful I'm pictures. The same. I'm the same. I think, you know, you, you would be cutting in your socks and you think, oh, God, I've got to put something on my feet now to go out and stack up the logs again. Of course, you will have, you'll have a big basket of logs beside the fire. Oh, yes. You see, you've got to be prepared. It's a bit like when you, you go to bed and I shouldn't really say this, but I'm really into, wait for it, bed socks. I'm oh, sure, right. yeah, I, and I've got, I've just what bought kind myself... of a cold house do you live in then? Well, yeah, very socks. cold, because Mr T, Simon, does not allow us to put the heating on until the 1st of November. So, what? <laughs> I know, I know, it's really bad, isn't it? Oh, that so is So I bad. have to put my bed socks on. So the fashion for me is PJs and bed socks. Mm-hmm. Sex appeal? None whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Well, it serves Mr T right, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so no, I, but I, I, we, we're the same in the bedroom. Windows open and everything. I mean, you know, there's always a lot of fresh air in the bedroom. It's quite yeah. cold, our bedroom. In fact, it's like a haunted blooming house when you go in there. You're talking you open in the, the winter. Door, all the way through. When, oh. you, when you open the door to the bedroom, the temperature yeah. just drops by about 20 degrees. You know, it's just <laughs> ridiculous. You can see your breath. You can see your breath. 
It's just like going outside and sleeping in the garden. Well, it is actually. Yeah, you wouldn't have it any other way. It's much better for you. And he's right. You know, if you've ever seen a hotel and you can't open the windows, there is just nothing worse, is there, than being in a, a hot house. No, it's true. It's true. And I think I've learned that as I've got older, I've realised it is much better. You're right. Not mm-hmm. to have the heating on a night and making sure we have fresh. Abs- and you sleep so much better. Of course. Yeah. 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 So much better that I missed the alarm in the next morning. But that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to do that, though. No, I don't want to do that. (laughs) But what other rituals do you have at night then? Because I've taken to Mm. reading. Have you never read before then at night? (laughs) No, I've known how to read since I was five. Don't worry. I mean, you know, for a while I got out of the habit. I love reading. For a while I got out of the habit and I was only ever reading when I was on holiday. And it would be my thing to do would be to take book or books on my Kindle on holiday and then get through them Ah. all, you know, and I'd be completely unsociable for two weeks or whatever the holiday period was. But I've recently got into reading again just all the time. So I have the Kindle beside the bed because I've got a new Kindle that that has a backlight on it. So you don't have to have the light on so you can read it in bed and not disturb anybody. So I I read myself to sleep now. God, I would find that so frustrating, Linda, because... Why? Well, how many pages do you get into? It depends. Well, it depends. You mean? I've actually, I've actually woken myself up again <laughs> by the Kindle hitting my nose <laughs> while I'm asleep. I bang straight down in my face. Have you never oh. done that? No, no, uh, I haven't because okay. I don't take a Kindle in. I, I should actually try and investigate. But could have the same effect if it was a big, heavy well, book. Well, that's true. That is very true. I think the only way of actually reading before you go to bed mm-hmm. or before you go to sleep, rather, is to go to bed early. Say yes, nine o'clock. It's making me go to bed earlier. Ah, OK. Yeah, see, so this that's is a good thing. Gift. Thinking, oh, good. Whereas before I'd be thinking, oh, I have to go to bed now. Now, <laughs> I think, oh, I'll go to, go to bed, read my book. So much distraction, though, Linda, isn't there? Because all the wonderful box sets... Before I don't. You go I don't. To bed. No, I don't. Watch no. Okay. Box sets. So you're very. But good. I do watch the telly, and there's often something good on at nine that finishes mm. at ten. A lot of the good dramas start at That's nine o'clock true. at night. So I tend yeah. to go to bed at ten. You know, I might catch the headlines at the news just to yeah. pretend I know what's going on in the world, and then I'll go off to bed and so read till about eleven. So your your slots are then nine o'clock. If you want to read your book if it's a good book. And no, if you, no, no, ten o'clock. So nine oh, o'clock oh, okay. is the good drama on the telly. Oh, I ten see. Ten o'clock. Right. Well, to ten past is about the headlines and the first article in the news. Then, of course, you do your ablutions and all that kind of thing. So by about half past ten, you're lying in bed and you pick up your book and off you go. By quarter two, you've got a bruised nose so, woken you up. So you're then fresh again till about eleven o'clock. <laughs> Keeps you going for another chapter. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. Have you um, ever learned to play the piano, Susie? Yeah, I have. And did. how did that go? Well, it went really well for about uh, a year mm-hmm. and a bit when I was... I only did it because I was trying to have a little bit more empathy with my children who I forced to play oh, the piano. Oh, you were an adult. Oh, you're an adult. Yeah. Oh, oh I th- yes. Because I learned to play when I was a child. Oh, did you? Yeah, and I was very, very keen for the first 
10 minutes, like a lot of children are. Yes. And after yes. that, I went for years, you know, but after that, it became just a bit of a thing that I did every week and I never used to practice and I was absolutely shocking. Mm. I did go back to it, you know, a few years ago and retaught myself a little bit, but I still, you know, I'm very, very poor at playing the piano. But you, so you took it up as an adult. How, yeah. how did that, can well, you play then? I, I, I probably can play a few tunes, but not a lot, not a lot. I, you mm. know, the, the, the tunes that the children play or learn to play with that would be my sort of top moments on that but it is interesting don't you think if you learned to play the piano when you were little Linda is it like riding a bike in a sense kind of it, it's almost know, like muscle know. yeah there's a mm. kind of muscle memory that comes back quite quickly I think mm. because of all the skills that you play and all the things that you learn and the theory and all of that kind of thing but I was always a bit rubbish because I, I didn't practice enough our guest today Brenda Lucas Ogden on the other hand she was really really enthusiastic from the moment she started she was just she was one of these really really keen people whereas I was kind of oh you must learn an instrument and I was pushed along you know she was in a different category altogether and of course now she is sublime you should hear her playing the piano absolutely amazing so we speak to her and she tells the story of uh, marrying John Ogden who's an incredibly famous pianist and what she's doing with the royalties of her latest release which is a piece by Ravel and uh, she's giving that to the homeless charity shelter so very interesting person Jan Moore has been speaking to Dr. Patricia Farah and she is a historian of science and she's very, very interested in women in science and very interested in, in, in persuading women to work in science as well. Patricia is interviewed by Jan Moore, one of our contributors, and uh, Jan's getting back out there and meeting women again after, you know, a long period of lockdown and having to be away from everybody. So she's having a ball at the moment, going out and meeting people. Women Making Waves delighted to be joined by acclaimed pianist Brenda Lucas Ogden. Brenda has released an album, Ravel Cougem. The royalties of the album will be given to homeless charity Shelter. Thank you very much for joining us today, Brenda. It's a great pleasure, Linda. It's lovely to be talking to you. Thank you. Now, you're an amazing pianist and I'm curious about the story behind that talent. At what age did you start learning the piano? I was five years old. My mother started me off learning the notes and um, I took to it immediately. And then I had a local teacher when I was six or seven. She was called Mrs Round. I won't forget Mrs Round. (laughs) (laughs) She kept interrupting the lessons to give Mr Round his tea, as she called it. And I complained to my mother that these lessons weren't quite up to the mark. But anyway, <laughs> I was determined to learn properly. And by the time I got to school, the convent of the Nativity, I had a wonderful nun who taught me, Sister Mary Angela, who was very, very musical, and she inspired me a lot. And I did the usual Associated Board examinations, and got high marks in those, and took it all from there. And then when I was um, 14, I had some private lessons 
from teacher at the Royal Northern College of Music as it is now. It was the Royal Manchester College in those days. Mm -hmm. um, that was the um, emigre Russian pianist, Iso Ellinson. I had these private lessons from him. He was very demanding. And he started me off with Chopin Etudes, oh. um, which was <laughs> not easy start. Uh, all the fingers for that. And two years later, when I was 16, I entered the college. I was nearly 17, but I was 16 at the time, and still studied with Iso Ellenson. So, uh, you know, he was, he was quite an uh, inspiring teacher, actually. I mean, he'd, he'd uh, fled from Russia during the revolution, and he told his pupils proudly, I was in prison with Glazunov. So, he, <laughs> which we're very impressed with. We don't know how he got out of prison, but he did. And he escaped to Germany, and there he, um, he was taken up by a, a very kindly family called Stein, a Jewish family, and, and they very cleverly left Germany in the nick of time. And Iso married the daughter, Hedwig, and the whole family came to Manchester. Uh, and Hedwig, yes, it was quite quite a story. It is. Mm. When you were at the college, you met your future husband, John Ogden. Yes, eventually, yes, I did, yes. And I believe the story is that you fell in love with him when you heard him play. Well, I, I don't know about falling in love, I was tremendously impressed. It was, um, he was playing Liszt Dante Sonata on the platform of the college, and... Um, it was just such a staggering performance. And I wasn't the only one who was impressed. All the students who were passing by through the hall stopped to listen because they'd never heard anything like it before. He was the most outstanding pianist by far in the college. You know, he was just a genius. It was, it was quite apparent. I was very impressed. I mean, falling in love came later. And you travelled the world with him, and you had two children with him as well. That must have been quite an exciting time, actually. It was very exciting. Incredibly exciting, yes. And were you playing at the same time? Yes, I played quite a few. Big Australian tour, I played solo concerti, and we played two pianos together. Mm -hmm. um, we did all the major Australian cities and Tasmania, and New Zealand as well. So, I mean, it was quite a long tour. ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and they were very good to us. It was very well organised. That must have been fun. Yeah, it was lovely. Yeah. Um, we had a holiday after that on route back. We had a holiday in Greece. It was a, it was a long journey, Australia. It's, it's long today, but it was unspeakably long in those days. Yeah. 1964. Oh, that's right. I remember people going by boat. It was six weeks if you went by boat. If you oh, yeah, by it was boat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then we had a lot of time in North America touring there, which was very exhausting, but wonderful. Uh, John played in New York, Carnegie Hall, wow. and all the major cities, really, yeah. from east coast to west and back again. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. I got a bit homesick in one of the tours because um, I'd had this little baby girl and I'd been forcibly removed from her, as it were, you know, for weeks on end. And so I suddenly decided I've had enough of this. 
in the middle of this tour. And I said to, to John and uh, the lady who was organising the concerts at the time swept in in a very posh sable coat and said, you can't go home, Mrs. Ogden. We need you at the party. I said, well, I'm going home anyway. I'm going home. <laughs> so I did. Yes, that must have been yeah. very difficult when you have yes, a baby. It was. Yes. 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 Yeah. Mm. Mm. It was 1964. Your husband started to suffer from mental health issues, I believe. Oh and yes, but but not after not after that. That came many years later, in 1973. So um, he had a lot of good years before he suffered from mental health issues. Good. Thank goodness. Yes. Yeah. And sadly, your marriage broke down, but you remained very close. Yeah, it didn't break down immediately. It broke down uh, several years after that. You know, I was very close to him when he immediately broke down. Mm -hmm. We were estranged after the, the period when he was a professor at Indiana University, and they unkindly sacked him after inviting him there for four years. So we had to leave. We spent four very good years at Indiana University and um, he didn't seem to mind that he'd been sacked and that that, uh, that upset me a lot. So we were estranged from, I should say, about 18 months, that's all. And you wrote a book about him yes. called Virtuoso, yes. telling the story of his life. Was, was that a difficult book to write? No, I started that book in Spain in the 70s. Now, I, I felt that it was um, a story that people... It was before he was mentally ill. Mm -hmm. It started before. And eventually I had a ghostwriter, Michael Carr, who did most of the writing for me because the publishers wouldn't take my schoolgirlish writing. So uh, Michael Carr, who was a wonderful writer actually, he wrote detective stories. Um, he got it published for me with Hamish Hamilton in 1981. It's been republished several times. Did you ever think that your talent was hidden in his shadow? Um, I felt um, overpowered by him at times, yes. Mm -hmm. um, but no, I mean, uh, he was very supportive of my playing. Incredibly supportive, right from the word go. And I didn't feel, I mean, I knew I wasn't the better pianist. I mean, I was reminded, that, reminded of that constantly. But it didn't come up as an issue in our marriage at all. Mm -hmm. And you released an album, didn't you, of you both playing? Oh, we released 40 records together. Mm -hmm. A lot of two piano work. All the, all the two piano works, we did most of, I think we'd, we missed out on some minor French works, but... Most of the big works we recorded, the Rachmaninoff Suites three times. Wow, amazing body of work, really. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. You and I teach piano. And no, I do, well, I used to teach a lot. I, that's not true. I, when I lived in London, I taught all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, now I live in Cambridge. I just teach one or two adult students, and they're all on, either in America or Australia or Germany. And that's all I do in the way of teaching now. But I did do a lot of teaching. I did have a, quite a big practice, actually, when I was living in Chelsea. Yes, I notice your pupils rave about what wonderful teacher you are. Oh, thank you very much. You've been reading my website. 
Yes, I have. <laughs> so teaching must have been something you really enjoyed. Oh, yes. I, I really, you know, I made very nice relationships. And I still have a lot of ongoing relationships with past students. Mm-hmm. And teaching remotely, if people are in America or Australia, how does that work? Or Skype or Zoom. Oh? It works very well. Wow. You know, it wouldn't have occurred to me that that is something that could happen. That's amazing. Oh, yes, yes. Now, your new album, Ravel Cougem, yes, has just been released. And as we mentioned earlier, the royalties are to be donated to Shelter. To from choose. me, not, not, not from the companies, not from the record company, only me. Your portion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why did you choose the homeless charity? Oh, well, I mean, you know, why not? It's, um, it's a very worthy cause, isn't it? It's very difficult to see people sleeping rough on the streets in doorways. It, it really makes me feel quite ill. So I wanted to do something about it. That's something that's particularly close to your heart. Yes, it is really. It, it was worse in Chelsea than it is in, in Cambridge. Because I used to see, when I walked down the King's Road, I used to, every shop, doorway or window, there was somebody sleeping, you know. Yeah. From Waitrose down to Peter Jones, there was somebody sleeping on the street. Yeah, it's really sad. Yeah, I think Cambridge is better. Cambridge has charities uh, such as Jimmy's. Yes, I've heard of Jimmy's, yes. Yes. And Trailblazers Mm -hmm. and Streetwise. Yeah. And, of course, the council are obligated to help, aren't they? At certain times when the temperature drops, yes. Yeah, but but not only at certain times. I mean, if somebody's deemed to be absolutely homeless, after 56 days, they give 56 days to sort them out. And I know they're building some little shelters for them as well, which is a great idea. That is true. Mm -hmm. Yes, Eliza, uh, quite great, sent me the Cambridgeshire uh, strategy for homelessness, you know, 17 pages of it. Mm -hmm. I was trying to memorise it, but it's quite (laughs) difficult. There there is a lot of opportunity, um, but apparently they don't always want to get off the streets, some of these people. They like to be independent. Yeah. That's what, what I've been told, which is unfortunate. Well, I guess for some it might be a lifestyle choice, but for those that want to get off the street, it's great that there's money available to help them. Yes, yes, yes. Well, the council needs the money, don't they? There's never enough. Never enough. You're absolutely right. So we have this new album. Yes. How can people get a hold of it, Brenda? Oh, on Amazon. Oh, on Amazon. On Amazon, yeah. So if you go on to Amazon and you Google Brenda Lucas Ogden. Google my name, Brenda Lucas Ogden. And then the title will come up. Ravel Kajem. It will come up. Well, it's a great idea that you've had to donate your royalties to Shelter. Really admirable, Brenda. And thank you for doing that. It's my pleasure. It's the least I can do. It's been lovely talking to you and hearing your story. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Brenda Lucas Ogden. Now let's listen to Brenda Lucas Ogden playing a track from the album. It's Sonatini 2, Mouvement de Menuet.
listen to our interviews by visiting womenmakingwaves.co.uk.